Good afternoon. This is Gaius Publius once again at Netroots Nation 2014 here in lovely downtown Detroit. I actually mean that uh, literally. This is a lovely downtown. Getting out beyond downtown is something that everybody ought to experience. It's eye-opening to see the ravages that happen to a city that experiences a Katrina-like disaster, only economically and, in my view, engineered. I'm sitting here with Dr. Stephanie Kelton, Chair of the Economics Department at UMKC, that's University of Missouri at Kansas City, and a leading light in the modern monetary theory uh, aspect of economics. Dr. Kelton, welcome very much. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm going to take you a little bit outside of your expertise because I, I know you have a broad mind and I know you've given a lot, of, a lot of thought to a lot of things, issues that are important to this country. We're coming into uh, a year in which the UN is trying to firm up a treaty on uh, a final treaty on climate 2015 in Paris, near the end of the year, they're going to either have a treaty or they're going to say, we have failed. Uh, coming up to that treaty, there's a discussion around how much more carbon can we burn and still, say, still stay safe. Uh, the question is going to be for them, is that number 400 or 500 or 600 million tons, there's quite a number of people who are saying, look, we've burned enough. There is no more burnable carbon. We have no budget. We have no headroom. As a person who has her eye on our country and the needs of our country, as a person who has children who will live and have children, what is your thought? Are it, would it be safe to burn more carbon, or do you think that there's really no headroom we ought to really stop now? Well, Caius, I don't know. You know, that obviously, as you said, this is taking me out of my area of expertise. I guess my, my answer is I hope that there is a bit of headroom because if there's not, we're, we're probably doomed in the sense that we're not going to stop burning carbon next year, even if there is legislation, right? We're not going to stop. So uh, I guess to the extent that that has to be the case, I hope that uh, in light of the fact that we're going to continue to burn carbon for some period of time into the future, that we can uh, begin to move to burning less and less and to replacing, right, uh, to diversifying the energy portfolio in such a way that we go much more heavily into renewables and that we wean ourselves off of carbon in time, I guess, is, is the way that I'm feeling about it when I think about my kids and rising sea levels and what the world is going to look like for them 40 years from now and for my grandchildren and so forth, that I hope there is enough headroom left to allow us to get our act in order in time. Well, I think, yes, a lot of people feel that way. Um, so let me skip down a bit. I'll call this question two. For most people, it's question three. At some point in the, in the grand scheme of things, at some point if we're going to stay within um, a climate band in which civilization developed and civilization as we know it, iPads and iPhones and electric heaters can continue to exist, at some point we're going to have to stop because we can't burn every carbon, every atom of carbon we can get to and not just send things into the stratosphere. So let's look at this as a practical question. At some point, the carbon industry has to be put out of business. 
Have you given any thought to how that might happen, how, what we could do to do that? Well, I, I don't know that I've spent much time thinking about uh, how to put the carbon industry out of business, but I spend, I guess, like most people who are concerned, uh, a fair bit of time. It's not my primary uh, area of research, but a fair bit of time reading the more optimistic, sort of cutting edge, what's happening. You know, in places like the Netherlands, when you read about uh, what they're doing there, the innovations that are taking place. I remember reading a story that um, they're actually producing energy using human beings on a dance floor. And they're powering this nightclub by the people actually dancing on the floor in the nightclub. And it's generating the power for the lights and so forth in the nightclub itself. And I think of little things like that, right, that seem like a small thing, but I think if this is what we're capable of and we're beginning to innovate in these kinds of ways, then I hope that, you know, I I read and I hear some scientists seem to say that we've got a little bit of time left. If we can just get our act in order and start capping and and getting moving toward renewables and so forth, there is enough time to, in a sense, roll back the clock, right, that that we can stop the progression of the rising sea levels. And then I hear other studies and I see other things and it sort of... scares me because I see some things that suggest that we've already passed the tipping point. And so I don't know, you know, I don't know all the science. I know that there's, there are things like um, going into the atmosphere, capturing carbon that was emitted in the past and somehow taking it out of the atmosphere. And so that, uh, do you know the process that I'm referring to? That They call it carbon re- capture and storage. Ca- capture CCS. and sequestration, right, yes. or something like that. And I don't know how real it is. I don't know what the potential is for going, uh, in a sense, backwards in time, from, you know, taking what damage we've already done and, essent- and essentially rewind winding the clock backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I don't know the science. I don't know how realistic those things are. But if, if those are options, then that's the kind of thing, I guess, uh, keeps me hopeful for the kids and grandkids and great-grandkids that are to come. James know? Hansen has a plan to actually reverse the climate problem, and it includes a form of carbon capture by reforestation because the the trees are obviously... Right right now, cutting trees is a net increase in climate because fewer trees, higher temperature. But if you start reforesting, then all of a sudden you reverse that process, and that's our natural carbon capture is is using trees to eat the carbon dioxide. It's interesting because, you know, I mentioned the dance floor and things that other people have have come up with as ways to, you know, uh, develop alternatives. My colleague, Matt Forstatter, at UMKC years ago uh, was working on green energy solutions using a job guarantee program, which is something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about. And one of the things that Matt Forstatter uh, has written a lot about is that we could put people to work. So you have all these unemployed people, right? And Matt says, why don't we employ people doing things that would help reduce the carbon footprint? So one of the things we could do is reforestation efforts. So you hire people and you put them to work planting and replanting trees and so forth. And and so that's a way to marry, I guess, what I'm used to thinking about with what you're always thinking about. And uh, so, yeah, there are all kinds of things that we could be doing to address this problem, but, uh, you know, you got to get past the, the big hurdle, the elephant in the room. Yeah, these, these are costly, right? So how are you going to pay for all these sorts of things? Well, I'm glad you mentioned how are we going to pay for this because... That's a theme on the right from climate. They say 
but what's it going to cost? And they're not looking at the end cost, which is the end of civilization. So what price would you put on that? Yeah. I love that you mentioned the dance floor. People think uh, there are a lot of humans on the planet generating a lot of energy. Yeah. Why can't that be captured? If you think of the number of cows, we say, okay, cows produce methane. That, that can't be much, right? There are that many cows producing a measurable amount of methane. We ought to be able to produce a measurable amount of energy from our bodies. I mean, we got, what, 7 billion, 10 billion people in the world? Yeah, what are we, seven. seven I think it's seven. Yeah, seven. seven headed for 10. Yeah, pretty, and we could change the way we eat. That would go a long way, I think, toward uh, reducing carbon emissions. We don't have to eat all these cows. There are other things we could be eating, right? Uh, so that's one way. And you're right, t t talking about how much humans move throughout the day and capturing energy, look at all the fitness centers mm -hmm. all over the place. Someone's running on a treadmill. Someone's on a bike. But if there was a way to to have that generating the the energy that then goes on to the grid that then powers. I mean, it'd be fantastic, right? We could imagine the possibilities, but... And the problem is getting there politically, which leads me to my next question. Yeah. Um, I know that you have a political eye as well as an economics eye. Let's look at 2016 for a second. Um, Hillary Clinton, there's a ready for Hillary presence here. There's a ready for Elizabeth Warren presence here. Mm -hmm. The there are a number of we've been talking all week about Thomas Piketty mm -hmm. and the kind of problems that the U.S. has economically and how to change that. You have ideas. A lot of people have ideas. We've got a choice of Hillary and some unspecified person who may never appear. Hillary being, we could comfortably say continue the policies of Barack Obama, continue the policies of Bill Clinton, or something else. Um, how much does it matter to you that we not go down that same, I'll call it neoliberal, it's a bit of a term of art, but that same privatizing, public-private partnership, let's bend to the corporations and be friends and partners with them. How important is it to you that we not go down that path starting in 2016? Well, it's hugely important to me that we not go down that path. I would love to believe that we could um, put ourselves on a different path by 2016. I don't know that I'm terribly optimistic about that. As you said, you know, Hillary is the presumptive uh, nominee, and I don't see anybody uh, really, if she wants it, I think it's hers to lose. Uh, and and I do believe that we know what we're going to get with Hillary. I don't think she's going to surprise us and come out as a strong advocate, willing to stand up and fight the, the stranglehold or the death grip that the oil and gas energy has. And so uh, I think it's extremely important that we break free of the neoliberal policies, the kind that, you know, her husband follow the kind that led to the crisis that, you know, we're still struggling and so many families are struggling to get out of the Great Recession. While it's technically over, it's not over for millions and millions of Americans, and it's a byproduct of the sorts of policies that were put in place, the supply-side economics, the deregulatory stuff, the idea that markets take care of themselves and all you have to do is incentivize the job creators and the jobs will come raining down on all of us and, and you know, lift everybody's boat and all that stuff. And so... Um, that's very important. I think it's, it's very important that we relearn the lessons of the past, that when we had the greatest prosperity and the greatest uh, gains in terms of growing income for the middle class and so forth, it was after World War II. It was a climate in which um, 
we had much more regulation. We had uh, much stricter. We had a much smaller financial sector. So the fire industry, finance, insurance, and real estate that is now, you know, we've got this financialized economy. It's huge. It's taking a disproportionate share of profits. It's uh, it's creating all sorts of problems in the real economy because so much cash is being shoveled into this one sector that quite frankly, doesn't produce much that's of value. And uh, and so if we're going to get back to a situation where you have a strong, robust, thriving middle class, then we've got to completely throw overboard these sorts of uh, neoliberal policies that got us where we are today. So that leads me to my next question. We know, we know you and I, because we are running the world, we know what not to do. Let's consider what to do, and I'll frame it this way. Let's say that um, magic happens, mm-hmm. and the Dr. Kelton plan for the country is enacted in 2016 because we have Dr. Kelton's presidency and a Congress that's amenable to you. This is FDR on steroids for the 21st century. What would you do as the organizer and promoter of the Dr. Kelton plan. What we what would we have under your Do I have to work with Congress or do I Congress, we get to do whatever I want? Congress will work with you. You have oh. you have FDR's Congress, both houses. You have what Obama had in two thousand and nine, yeah. which he decided not to use. Yeah. But you're going to decide to use it. What do you do? Well, we've got so we've got a couple of problems. We have problems in the financial side of the economy, and we have problems on the real side of the economy. And so you got to have different solutions for different problems, right? So I talked about the size of the fire sector. It's way too big. You, it's it creates all fine fire. Okay, so fire is the acronym: the finance, insurance, and real estate, right? And so we've got these banks that are perceived as being too big to uh, too big to fail, and they call them. I love this systemically important. That this is how they were referred to, even in testimony with Janet Yellen before both members of the Senate and the House just last week. So these systemically important institutions. They're not systemically important. They're systemically dangerous. Okay, if you're too big to fail, you're too big to exist. You pose an imminent, a clear and present danger to the entire global economy. The biggest banks in the world have to be downsized. So that's really important. We've got to go back... You know, I have a friend, uh, Marshall Arbach, who says the the Great Depression, we had 25% unemployment, right? We had a, a collapse of GDP of a third. It was nothing we've seen in our lifetimes looks like the Great Depression. It was horrible. And because things got so bad, we got Glass-Steagall. We got the legislation that stopped banks from taking the kinds of excessive risks that could pose the kind of threat to the entire economy that we have today. We got legislation that made banks behave like banks and uh, couldn't take risky bets and engage in certain sorts of activities. Glass-Steagall was the legislation that stopped that. Well, we don't have Glass-Steagall anymore, and we don't have it because of Bill Clinton, right, a Democrat. And so the Great Depression got us Glass-Steagall. The Great Recession, what we've been through most recently, where unemployment only got as high as 10% or so, we get Dodd-Frank. So we need a catastrophe of a, apparently we need a catastrophe of a much bigger scale to get the kind of policy response to contain the sorts of threats to the system 
uh, before we can get them. But if I'm in charge and I have no right, yes, I, I can do it. because the disaster's already happened and the people are in your hands. Right. Then we get Bill Black in, my colleague, who was, uh, who's a white-collar criminologist, who's a financial regulator, who is the cop on the beat. And we get a 1,000 Bill Blacks. And then if they tell us they need a 1,000 more, we get a 1,000 more. We get people who take seriously oversight and regulation of the financial system. We get people who aren't going to let the banks get away with what they want. They're going to supervise them. They're going to prosecute them aggressively. When they catch them engaged in fraudulent behavior, they're going to go to jail, and we're going to stop this, the shenanigans that are posing the kind of threat that's destroying the economy. So that's on the financial side. Now, on the economic side, it's rather simple because, you know, the economy performs well when you have lots of consumers with income to spend, and they go out and they buy the stuff that the firms are producing, and then the firms have customers, so they have good, nice revenue stream, they make a bit of profit, and then the economy works well. When the economy doesn't work well is when you've got the kind of inequality that we have today. So in the after the Great Recession, when the economy started to recover, some people started to do really well, right? 80% of all the income gains since the start of the recovery have gone to the top 20% of Americans. 80% of all the income. We're just shoveling cash into wheelbarrows for these folks. And what do they do with it? They don't need another refrigerator. They don't need to go out and buy one more car, right? They have the car, number of cars they need. They, their refrigerator works fine. They're not buying another one. They haven't been putting it off because they couldn't afford it, right? But we keep giving them all the extra cash that's being generated, so they plow it into the stock market. They buy second, third homes. They buy art. They buy, you know, a vintage wine for their sellers, and so you get asset price inflation. So, in other words, it, inequality helps to create problems that look like financial bubbles that then create problems for the economy later when they burst and then we have a whole new cleanup problem and so um, your prescription got, would your be? prescription is to get incomes rising for the people at the bottom you got to um, do things to help people protect their rights to organize we need unions to come back in this country we need a jobs program and, you know, for years I've been an advocate of an, a good old-fashioned FDR-style jobs program modeled on the WPA, the CCC, the National Youth Administration, the jobs programs that we had in place uh, after the Great Depression, that if they, were, if they were created the right way and you said, look, anybody who's ready, willing, and able to work but unable to find a job in the private sector or the regular public sector or you just don't like that job, you can come and take this job. We're going to create one for you at a living wage with these benefits and, and so on and so forth. And you create a package for the worker that then becomes the minimum to which everybody else has to provide it or they're not going to get workers. Now, if you, that package can include universal health care, can include child care, it can include vacation time that's more generous than what you know, you'd get working at the Walmart. That becomes the de facto minimum, and it puts in place uh, a level of care for workers that if you can't meet the same level of care, then you're going to lose your worker, right? Because this is the minimum that we are willing to allow uh, someone in this country who's working for a living, eight hours a day, full-time, working hard, we're not going to let you starve in America. Right? FDR said no one starves in America. That's what we want. So I don't want this to go by without people really getting what was said. 
you're saying that you don't need to define a minimum wage because the government is an employer that sets a floor. Right. And anybody, that's the magic of the free market. Anybody who wants a better job than the junk job they've got can work for the government, and that forces private employers to compete with the government for workers, and that's a good thing for workers. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it is what I'm saying. I mean, sometimes... You think, well, you don't want to uh, create competition. Well, I do want to create the competition because you're right. So many of these jobs are junk jobs, and these people work really, really hard. And if you're working hard in a full-time job and you still can't afford the basic necessities of life, then that, that's not a wage that's sufficient. The wage has got to be a living wage. For anyone working full-time in America, you ought to have a living wage. So one more follow-up on that because... Um, this is something that's much discussed, and I know you have thoughts on this. We think we, the popular mind who um, is raising kids and working our jobs, and we, we, we get five minutes a day to say what's the solution to uh, uh, wealth in America for the ordinary person, and one answer that just sort of pops up is, well, let's bring back manufacturing jobs. Mm-hmm. That will solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that's the case? And if it isn't, what will solve the problem? Well, I think I think there's a lot of romanticizing about manufacturing jobs, and I think that what we tend to do is we, most of us are uh, that talk about this sort of thing probably are in an age bracket where maybe our parents or our grandparents had manufacturing jobs, and we know that they went to work every day, they brought home a paycheck, the family got their TV, and they got a car, and it seemed like a good living and a good job. Uh, paid well, there was a pension, you know, you retired with some sense of dignity and security and so forth. And so we, we think about manufacturing jobs because we think about the security and the safety the jobs, you know, you know benefits, sec- income safety, right, that that provided. And so we want that again. But I don't think we're going to get that by bringing back manufacturing jobs. I think those jobs are gone. I think they're probably gone for good. It's cheaper to produce uh, manufactured goods in other parts of the world. It just is. And, you know, 100 years ago, we were an agricultural economy. And if I'm sure back then people got very scared when they saw the loss of ag jobs. Say, my father was a farmer, his father was a farmer, we're losing our farming jobs, this is terrible. But then in came manufacturing. And then then we had a a renaissance of sorts with manufacturing. Well, now the manufacturing jobs are leaving, and we're becoming increasingly just a service economy. And there's no reason in my mind why those service sector jobs can't be high-skilled, well-paid, include benefits, and all the other sorts of things. I mean, a lot of those manufacturing jobs, people were doing things that were very unsafe, right? They're hard jobs. They're repetitive jobs. Um, They're things that... uh, low-skilled, low-wage workers are now doing all over in other parts of the world, and I'm not so sure we should be fighting to bring those types of jobs home. What we want to do is bring the benefits and the income back up to the level that we enjoyed when we had a strong manufacturing uh, industry with unions and so forth. I think that's what we're longing for. It's not so much that we want to rivet all day long. It's just that we want the the benefits and the wages and the security that came with those manufacturing jobs. So what you're describing is a process by which farming jobs disappeared were replaced by manufacturing jobs, and what you didn't describe was the process by which low-wage 
manufacturing jobs became union manufacturing yeah. jobs and therefore yep. better. And now we're moving away into service jobs and we're in that low-wage phase. Precise. And I think you're asking that we make those the jobs that we have better union, better paid jobs. Exactly. Is that, is that right? Exactly. And I think one way to drive that, you know, pe people are, are asking now for increasing the minimum wage on some of these low-skill, uh, low-paid service jobs, fast food industry and so forth. And that would be one way, uh, I guess, to do it. The other way, as we just talked about a few minutes ago, would be to create a, a jobs program that would become the de facto minimum. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't even need a minimum wage law. That would take its place. Right? Well, and it would be the wage and benefit package complete. I can tell you that in, in my world, the progressive world, the people who are doing the best work are the people who are organizing low-wage workers mm -hmm. to become union. Mm -hmm. It's the fast food forward mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. It's the organized restaurant workers movement, which is strong, and it's not wedded to the Democratic Party the way people like the AFL-CIO sometimes tend to be. They want, they want the right thing for their people, and they will fight anything yeah. that's in their way. And this is unionism the way it was back in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, this is a big part of the solution, I think, for reducing income inequality. And it's one that uh, this, this book that's taken a lot of people by storm, this Thomas Piketty, The Capital in the 21st Century, that focuses on the problem of growing income and wealth inequality around the world, right? And one of the things he doesn't, I think, emphasize enough in that book is the importance of unionization, the important role that unionization played in diminishing inequality during those years that he looks at. And he says, you know, th these are examples of the period in which workers had the best uh, in terms of their wage growth relative to those at the top, right? Inequality was much less problematic then. Yeah, because uh, in very large part, in very large measure, the role that was played by the unions and in defending we, wages and, and bargaining for increased wages and so forth. And we could reverse that easily under a Dr. Kelton presidency by enabling the National Labor Relations Board to actually do its job. Yeah. Well, that's great. So the last question is a little more personal. You are a passionate person. You are uh, known as an economist. You are actually widely known as an economist in your field, modern monetary, modern monetary theory especially. But you're also passionate politically and observer of the world around me, around you. Would you tell how you, your story, how did you start to... Where did you start from, and how did you become the person who is as energized as you are to do the things you do? What put you on your path? That's a good question. You know, I, I was thinking about it. It's funny that you asked this because I didn't see this one coming, but I did start thinking about this just because we're in Detroit right now. And uh, the other day I was thinking about the trip to Detroit, and I saw the Flint, Michigan signs coming in. And I remembered Flint, Michigan. That was that Michael Moore movie, right? Roger and Me. Mm -hmm. That movie had a profound impact on me. And I don't think I realized until I was coming into Michigan how much of my thinking was shaped after watching Michael Moore's Roger and Me film. Um, and so, you know, as an economist, gosh, you come up in here and you get your training and it's all so conventional. There are supply and demand curves. And this is how markets work, right? Markets are... Uh, are efficient and markets find ways to allocate resources to get to equilibrium. And when everything's in equilibrium, the world is all great. And then you see a film like 
Roger and me, and you say, well, wait a minute, how come there's so much unemployment? How come there's so much hardship? And then, you know, you see it in your everyday life, and it doesn't square with what you've been trained uh, to understand about how markets are supposed to work and fix themselves. And so I I was never inclined to become a conventional economist. Um, I think I just saw too many problems in the world, too many people suffering, no way to rationalize it um, in terms of economic theory. And so uh, I, I just, I could never convince myself that the stories were right because it didn't square with what I was observing. Is that what led you to modern monetary theory? Oh, uh, no. I mean, modern monetary theory was, is the, I think of it as the body of scholarship that developed let's see, starting in the mid-90s. And it's funny because uh, it was a, a hedge fund manager who reached out to us and said, you guys know that this economic theory is junk, right? All this stuff that people are trying to talk about and teach is, is really junk. And so we sat down with this hedge fund manager, of all people, right, who said, we are woefully underperforming. Like, people are suffering and it could all be fixed so easily if we got the theory right and if we got the policy based on the right theory. And here was this guy with so much money who seemed deeply disturbed at how um, poorly the economy was doing and how badly people were suffering. And um, we never thought the theories were right, and we had a lot of the same understanding that he had, but we didn't have all of the pieces together ourselves. And it was in talking with him and going back to the old canons, the, you know, Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations and going back to Veblen and going back. I mean, we went through everything and reread things. And we started finding insights into the problems that we're facing today that became part of the MMT literature in Smith and in Keynes and in Abba Lerner. And we rediscovered some things and put the pieces all together into a coherent new framework now that, you know, is a branch of economics that I think uh, better than any other branch helps to explain how a capitalist system works, why it usually produces results that are subpar. That means that you have people, that you have involuntary unemployment. Lots and lots of people who want to work and can't find jobs. Uh, so it helps you understand why that is the case. And what are the policy options? And we are the, the one school of thought that can really answer the question, um, can you achieve full employment and sustain it? And uh, how much policy space is available? How can you get there using economic policy? So you got a lot of people who say, well, you know, you don't need austerity today because austerity just makes things work. But eventually you're going to have to have it in the future. You know, makes things worse, right? Yeah, it austerity makes, makes yeah, things worse. Yeah, so the the MMT school is the the anti austerity on steroids school. You know, we're not the um, the sort of soft left that says, well, austerity today is bad, but we're going to need austerity somewhere into the future. You know, sometime tomorrow. So um, this is the theory, as I understand it, uh, and it's not just specific to a small group. Uh, you find uh, huge elements of this in David Graeber. You find huge elements of this even embedded in people like Paul Krugman, who will uh, at some point go around it and at other points say, yeah, the basic tenets mm -hmm. are true, mm -hmm. without sort of putting all those pieces together yeah. perhaps in his brain. 
Um, we will do modern monetary theory another time, but um, I am so happy to see, it, it's a fairly simple theory, I'm so happy to see that the connection of economic ideas and political possibilities, we're not looking at academics here. There's something bloodless about these, these academic theories that don't account for how people have happy lives, and this seems to merge those beautifully. Dr. Kelton, thank you very much. You're thank welcome. you for sharing your, candid, your, your fantasy of a Dr. Kelton presidency You're with welcome. us. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. This is Gaius Publius saying good night, uh, actually good afternoon, though it will be good night. This is the last day of Netroots Nation 2014. I hope everybody who is not here considers coming here next time.